from Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. Now, concerning food sacrificed to idols, we all know that all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge, but anyone who loves God is known by him. Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists, and that there is no God but one. Indeed, even though there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. It is not everyone, however, who has this knowledge. Since some have become so accustomed to idols until now, they still think of food they eat as food offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if others see you, possess knowledge, eating in the temple of an idol, might they not, might, might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols? So by your knowledge, those weak believers for whom Christ died are destroyed. But when you thus sin against members of your family and wound their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Therefore, if food is the cause for their faith, that falling, I will never eat meat, so that what I may not cause one of them to fall. The word of God for the world. Thanks be to God. Even today, meat brings up a whole host of moral issues. Our questions today have more to do with how animals are treated, or we ask questions like, is this beef grass-fed? or grain-fed? Or were these chickens free-range or caged? And for some, even categorically eating meat altogether is wrong for various reasons, religious, moral, dietary. Well, today we come to a great passage that I think I've never heard a sermon on. And I joked at Free For All that I think this was Paul's secret agenda for us all to become vegetarians. For he says in that last verse that Dave just read, Therefore, if food is a cause of their falling, I will never eat meat. Melinda said at Free For All, that time of gathering we have early in the week, to talk about the text, she said, As someone who was raised with an emphasis on what's on your plate, she said it can be really easy to focus on the nuts and bolts of food preparation or eating just the right thing rather than the point, which is God. It becomes much easier to follow certain purity laws than actually lean in to relationships. At its core, this discourse of Paul's is really an ethical treatment of how we gather with our brothers and sisters in community, doing it in love, which course is the essence of hospitality. At its core, hospitality is not something you do or don't do. Hospitality is a way of being in the world, a posture of humility, always cognizant of those who 
who you are in community with. And Paul opens this up with this beautiful philosophical conversation about and contrasting knowledge and love. He argues that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, which I think is a great point. Knowledge, and by the word puffs up, means makes one arrogant, self-focused. But love builds up, makes one other-focused. And to me, this is really the crux of the passage, which is why I think he starts with knowledge and love. To say, when we act out of knowledge or self-focus, we can tend to build walls. Saying, these and, right, and serve out of my rights what I know to be true. Versus love, which is other-focused. Giving up rights of self for the good of the community. And this is really the core of his message. And I want to say, though, for a very knowledgeable crowd, knowledge in of itself is not bad. We know this. And Herb, though, said at Free For All, yes, that's true, but knowledge can be destructive. It can be used against one another. And it takes this example, I think, for us to be quite applicable, even though we don't sit around talking about meat sacrificed to idols. But here's the context. In the Corinthian scene, there was an elite folk that were very well-educated, probably well-off, claiming that they had special knowledge without realizing that they were alienating their brothers and sisters. It's interesting, too, in this upper social class of people, these Corinthian elite, um, that they had frequent feasts and celebrations, and part of that was utilizing meat that had been sacrificed in the local temple. And so to give up eating meat that was sacrificed was giving up these social feasts and celebrations. In fact, Paul even raises the question of, of what is knowledge to these Corinthians that so claim that they have this secret knowledge. And though we can't get it in the English translation, he's really comparing, and this is sort of nuanced, but Apparent knowledge versus real knowledge. Okay, look, listen to what he says. He says, anyone who claims to know something doesn't yet have the necessary knowledge. Does this ring any bells? Meaning, if you claim to know something, beware that the very fact that you need to claim that you know something may be betraying that you don't have the real knowledge. In fact, he, just in case we have no idea what he's talking about yet, he explains what real knowledge is. He says, but anyone who loves God is known by him. Real knowledge is relational knowledge, according to Paul. It's found in the act of loving. In loving, we know and are known. And for Paul... This is a deeper form of knowing. Okay, so what does this have to do with anything, right? Why does he begin this way? Well, for Paul, this is giving the theological backbone for the ethical living. For most, how we live in community. And so he spends the next few verses, 4, 5, and 6, breaking down his theology. And he says, yeah, it's true. The food that's brought into these pagan rituals and sacrifice... We know idols don't really exist, so this meat is not defiled. 
He said, though I agree with your premise of argumentation, I don't reach the same conclusion. He says, if it causes a weaker brother to stumble, don't eat it. See, now this is important as well. The highly educated elites of the Corinthian church were also in congregation with those ordinary working people who many times didn't have meat to put on the table. And if anything, many of these had been recent converts to Christianity from these idolatrous cultures of pagan ritual and sacrifice. So for them, eating this meat was extremely reminiscent of where they had come from. And so Paul says, we are no worse off if we do not eat. And no better off if we do. You remember Paul said, everything is permissible, but not everything is what? Beneficial. Now, you could just hear Paul reacting or responding, rather, to those who say, yes, but it impinges on my liberty. I want to eat meat. I want to be a part of these social festivities and celebrations. And Paul, anticipating the rebuttal, says in verse 9, but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Paul's greatest concern is the community. And that's whom he's writing, this Corinthian community. He says, yes, as individuals, you can eat all the meat you want, but in a community, you have a responsibility for the community's overall health. And if your eating meat causes someone to stumble, don't do it. And thus, the ethical underpinnings of hospitality, what guides all of our decisions in community life. The question being, what creates health or wholeness for all the brothers and sisters in the community? It may mean that as an individual, I have to give up my right. And am I willing to do this for the greater good? <laughs> my main encounter with this was when I first went to Labrie. It was a residential community where you live literally lived together, slept together, worked together. And I did this for about six months, wanting to experience a true intentional community, what they call now. And I remember, for whatever reason, my burning question at the time was, um, is it okay to get a tattoo? This seemed to be like what all things hinged around, right? At, at that time, being in my young 20s. Which I didn't see as inherently wrong, but I was questioning if it causes my brother or sister to stumble, does this mean I can't get one? And so we had this whole conversation um, of expression and, and, and something that even Dick mentioned at Free For All. Um, if we just go with the weakest community, and using Paul's terms, the weakest community member leading um, sort of the least common denominator rules, um, doesn't that sort of create this sort of oppressive culture, too. And I, I really don't remember the outcome. I just remember that I didn't get the tattoo. <laughs> but I do, I do think part of our conversation and community is to be able to have these sort of practical conversations. Um, one thing I valued and treasured about Labrie was that we had this every Monday afternoon. We would come in as a community and write down questions 
put them in this bowl and we would pick out, um, and usually the mentors would pick them out and respond and then we would have conversations. This was a key formative part for my development and spiritual practice. But the question of whether or not you have a tattoo or drink wine at the religious occasion is not exactly what Paul's getting at. He's going a little deeper, as he usually does. See, hospitality is not just about avoiding offense, which is really what my tattoo question was about. In fact, if that was all that was at stake, being prophetic in a community, it would be nearly impossible. I mean, I'm sure I've never offended any of you. Right? I mean, sometimes this happens. We're called to be prophetic at times. But this is not what Paul is saying. He says hospitality at its core, again, as I said at the beginning, is leaning into relationship, a relational knowledge that builds up <coughs> a way of being. Let me say it a different way. I think what we really think when we think of hospitality, we think of how we can be kind. How we can offer a kind smile, a courteous conversation to the new visitor, a place to stay, a cold drink of water, a set of clothes. But hospitality pushes us further. Are we willing to give up our own bed, our own drink, our own clothes for somebody else? When it begins to hurt us a bit, we start questioning this whole hospitality thing. Whoa, I'm okay with putting someone up at the Best Western but I don't know about this giving up my own bed. Giving up meat just because that brother can't figure it out, doesn't know what I know, isn't this sort of the core. In fact, I really think, and this is key, I think what Paul is getting at is breaking down the contrast of humility versus arrogance. And I think there's four levels of arrogance that we're called to, to evaluate and even make confession today. Here's, I made these categories up, but moral arrogance, tribal arrogance, spiritual arrogance, and intellectual arrogance. <coughs> so in case we don't know which category fit, I'll give some examples. <laughs> now, moral arrogance is when we find ourselves saying things like, I'm not like those people who do fill in the blank. Or tribal arrogance. Man, I'm glad we have this figured out. We've cornered the market. Spiritual arrogance. It's too bad you don't know God like I do. Mm. Or, I can't believe you don't help the people I help. Or intellectual arrogance. Oh, those small, poor people. Small-minded people. Bless their heart. <laughs> if only they could see the truth. Or only if they could know what I know. Of course, it's not always this obvious, right? You probably don't find yourselves caught in those phrases, but it's behind our perceptions. And this text is about blessing people wherever they are in the journey. Whatever knowledge has been revealed to them, 
hearing them or looking down at them because they're not in the place that you're at. I think maybe even beyond giving up our own bed or giving up a cold cup of water, this is even harder, giving up our judgments, that they're not in the right place of belief or knowledge that we are. After all, Paul said, yeah, this meat isn't defiled. It's not inherently wrong. But he doesn't use that as a way of using liberty to eat it. You have to give up. This is love, giving up to build up. And this is how a community thrives, out of a conviction of this selfless love. The community good over my own good. Sometimes. And I think, really at its core, one of the things I learned living in an intentional community is I learned why most of us don't live in community. <laughs> and I mean, I was only there six months, but... It's not because we're afraid that somebody's going to ask us to borrow our car or sleep in our house or eat our food. But at its essence, I think we're afraid to lean into those relationships. Leaning into the freedom of love where we have to expose things about ourselves and one another. I mean, you can't live with these people, and I found this out quickly, without getting into some meaningful conversations, without getting into conflict and the hard work of figuring out how to live life together. At Free For All, Philip said, sometimes there's something more important than being right. To saying, I don't care what you believe. I'm called to treat you with love. But see, we're still focused on trivial pursuits, he said. And he laughed. American religion invented the game of trivial pursuit. We tend, don't we, to focus on the minor things and end up injuring community? This was classic church debate over carpet color, window treatment. Brian, also at Free For All, said, how distracted we get by the less important things, like putting a glass of water on a table and leaving a ring on the table, versus the real concern we should have around the depth of fellowship and community. In other words, we should be less concerned with table manners and more concerned about table fellowship. Where is our focus? See, rules, of course, get developed for good reasons, to keep people safe, to learn building blocks. But when the rules replace relationship, we have the wrong order. And Jesus said something like this about the Sabbath. When everyone was bending to the Sabbath, he says, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath and not the other way. But it's so much easier to live inside the boundaries that are so black and white. This is right and this is wrong. Meat is good. That meat's wrong. 
It's much harder to live within the mystery and trying to get closer as a community. So after all this processing of community life, I think what I finally came upon at the core is that hospitality sort of resembles something like this, or not. As children, we teach them if they go into special places, we say, don't touch anything. <laughs> if we're in a museum, a nice store with expensive things, breakable things, things that say the word fragile on them, we definitely say, don't touch anything. And this continually gets reinforced. Things are too special to actually explore, put their hands on. And I think this is exactly what happens in our life at church. We've made it all nice and neat with religious beliefs and moral codes, rights and wrongs, sacred cows, special ornamentation, unique liturgy. As if in all this we teach people so that you can come in, but don't touch anything. <laughs> don't touch how we do things. Don't touch where we sit. Don't touch our beliefs. Don't question this God. And what happens over time is not only does hospitality crumble, but we've created something even worse. Not only do they not touch the church, they don't touch God anymore. Providence, what if we can continue, continue to create an environment that considers the metaphorical dietary needs of others. That we continue to give up our personal liberties for the good of the community. And finally, we offer a sacred space that says, come in and feel free 